Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Genesis. All right. Glad to see everybody greeting one another so well this morning. Everybody having a great week? All right. We have an excited, everybody's excited this morning. What's going on? Uh, how about like it's not been raining the whole week for a change? Yeah. All right. Amen to that. Well, uh, I thought it was really awesome that last song we sang. Wasn't that great? Joel, just saying. All the guys, Rob, thank you. Um, but that verse, be glorified in me, think about that as we talk today because I was thinking, I was like, wow, you know, so appropriate, Joe, that you picked that song for today because what we're going to talk a lot about uh, today is uh, loving ourselves. And if God can be glorified in you, if you can do that, that means that's a sign that you love yourself and you love yourself in a godly way. So we're going to, uh, we're going to look at that in detail. And uh, I just want to start as we get going in the, the second half of Romans chapter 13 um, to, to get into the scripture and we'll get started. So let's take a look at Romans 13 uh, verses 8 to 10. All right, so here we go. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So as we look at this second half of Romans 13, it's kind of interesting that Paul starts out this section by saying, let no debt remain outstanding. So why would Paul say this? And uh, why would he say this in the context of loving others? So let's take a quick look at verse 7 just to kind of see what's going on and what we talked about last week. Remember last week, Michael talked about submitting to authority, and that was about what the first half of Romans chapter 13 was about, submitting to government and submitting to authorities. And in verse 7, we say, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe him taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, Leave no debt outstanding. So it's really a transitional verse, and Paul is moving from talking about submitting to authority to loving others. So let's take a look at what is a debt, and I think everybody knows what a debt is. It's an obligation to pay back something that some, someone has lent you, usually money, right? So how do we treat a debt when we have a debt? Uh, when you receive a sum of money or, or equivalent from another, uh, another person, it usually means that that person has trusted you, right? And they might even lend you money in the context of, uh, of loving you, of caring for you, and that's the reason that they lent you money. You're a friend, they really care about you, and they, you had a need. And at the same time, we know that a stranger would never lend you money. Perhaps some of you have tried that. It doesn't work. When I was younger, sort of out of college, I actually resolved myself that I would never lend anybody money. <clears throat> And why was that? Because I wanted to protect my money, 
No, not so much. I mean, that was part of it. But part of it was that I just saw around me that whenever somebody seemed like whenever somebody lent money out, they never got it back. It ended up in a fight, and that relationship was broken. And so I kind of, even though I wasn't a Christian, and I had this idea that debt and money causes problems between people. I know that never causes any problems in marriages, for all you guys are married, but um, between friends it can. <laughs> Now when I lend money occasionally, and I do, I do lend money occasionally, uh, I always wonder how the people that I lend money to, money to view me. Uh, are they grateful that I was able to take some of my resources and give it to them for a period of time until they could get over the hump, so to speak? Or I kind of wonder, do they treat me as uh, an easy mark? Um, someone that they can get something out of, and they have actually no intention to pay me back, uh, knowing that probably I can afford it more than they can and take it on that way. In other words, do they see me as a sucker? <laughs> um, and so I think it's important when we talk about lending money to a friend um, that we should ask ourselves some questions. You know, if I'm going to lend some money to a friend, so like, am I in a position to lend some money? Can I do that? Um, do I expect to get the money back? If you're borrowing money, do you plan to pay the money back? Or are you taking an attitude that, well, maybe this can turn out to be a gift? And uh, we should ask ourselves these questions because it makes a difference. And lending or borrowing money gets really complicated. And the reason it gets complicated is because relationships are complicated, right? And that's why lending money gets complicated. I'll give you a couple examples from my own life. Uh, I got out of college. I moved to Texas and uh, played soccer with a bunch of guys for about a year, and I got into the position where I wanted to organize a team, and I did that. But if you've ever done this kind of thing, you know there's some upfront money that goes, right? So you got to put about 500 bucks down for the, for the league fees and the referees and the cool shirts that we bought. And uh, so everybody paid me, but there's always one guy, right? There's always one guy. And that guy happened to be a, a colleague who worked with a close friend of mine, and so... I took my buddy and I said, what, what's going on with this guy David? How come he's not paying me back or paying me the money? And he, said, he looked at me and he said, he thinks that you can afford it. You make more money than he does, so he just wants you to pay it. He's not going to pay you. I'm like, wow, that's so sad. Do you think that affected my relationship with this guy? A, how he viewed me, and B, how I viewed him, of course. Fast forward about 20 years, a little more recently, um, I had occasion to, to really help a friend who wanted to start a business. And so I lent him some money, and I lent him money that I didn't really, really couldn't afford to lend, but I really wanted to help him. And so I did that. We put together a contract and everything. He was going to pay me back within 18 months. 18 months turned into five years. And he paid me back, which was awesome. And I never pressured him to pay me back, but I just want to say that all during that time, between 18 months and five years, there was this thing between us, right? And it's heavy. It's a, it's, a, it's a burden. And so when relationships are involved and there's a debt going on and you owe a debt, the right attitude, at least in my mind, and it's my opinion, is to eliminate that debt as quickly as possible. The right attitude with your friends is to pay that debt quickly. And, uh, you know, really ask yourself, is that debt a burden on you? Uh, is it in the way of that relationship with that person? If it is, 
get it done, get a second job, mow lawns, do anything, fix it, get it right. That's what Paul is saying. Do not um, have debts with one another. <clears throat> Personally, in that situation, I would do that. I would sacrifice everything that I do and everything that I want to buy until that debt was taken over, until it was taken care of. And the important thing here is all in the attitude. It's that attitude, I just want to get it right. I want that debt to be right. I owe Fred 500 bucks, and I, I just I want it to be done so that we can just be on, on track again as friends. This attitude of being willing to sacrifice to pay that debt, to get it done quickly for our friend, is really important. And I'm going to come back to that, but keep that in mind. I think that's where Paul is driving here as we look to eliminate debts with one another. And he goes on to say that we have a continuing debt to love one another. So if I apply this same right attitude about my debt to a friend, um, that this debt is always on my mind, if I want to pay it off, if I apply that same attitude to loving others as if I had a debt to pay, then I would love more eagerly and I would love more often. So the question I have is, like, do we really have a debt um, to love one another um, because of what God has done for us? I just want to make a small clarification here. God's gift of salvation and God's uh, gift of the Holy Spirit to us um, and God's grace is given to us freely. If we were to owe God a debt, if we were to owe him some kind of payment for what he's done for us, then that wouldn't really be a gift, would it? And so um, if it's no longer a gift, then we, we're earning it. And so I just want to make this small clarification that uh, I don't want you to be burdened by this expectation of a debt for what God has done for you. Rather, that you would be freed by God's grace from all that the world is trying to take away from you and that you would be freed from, uh, by God's grace for all that God has for you. That you would live in an overflow of God's grace, of God's love that he's given out to you. You live in this overflow of love that you have to give out. This is uh, how love manifests itself in our lives, Right? And so it's not so much as debt that we have to pay, but it's recognizing what God has done in our lives that we want to give it out to others. So um, what exactly is love anyway? And so um, love, of course, in the world is, um, is, is gooey, it's sentimental, it's romantic, all of those things. But we know here that that's not what love is. But just to get a, a really good definition on this so that you can really look at people differently as you leave here today, Love is a committed, thoughtful action to seek another's best interest, to make them great, to make them the best that they can be, genuinely happy, and ultimately make them what God created them to be in the first place. So when you look at someone and you say, I want you to be everything that God created you to be, and I'm going to help you to do that, I want to help you to get there, then you're loving them. If you yourself are seeking the same thing, to get to know God better, to be all that you can be in Christ, to get to be the best that God has for you, to be all that God created you to be. If you can do that for yourself, then you're loving yourself, right? Loving yourself isn't just buying a new boat or a new car uh, or taking great vacations. This definition of loving yourself is striving after all that God has for you. And if you can do that, if you find yourself doing that, then you're capable of loving others, okay? Now, 
Oh, I want to encourage you, if you hang around here at Genesis, you're going to meet some really godly men and women. Uh, godly men and women who are going to push you, encourage you, teach you, and drive you towards being all that you can be in Christ. And so I hope that some of you are experiencing that. Um, I shouldn't say some, that most, if not all of you, are experiencing that uh, as you hang around here at Genesis. There's really no better way to love those around you. So if you're here at Genesis... Um, and you want to love people around you, just keep pointing them to Jesus. It's a simple thing to say, but there's a lot to it. Now, that doesn't mean we can't help, uh, love others by helping them with uh, moving. We've all been involved with helping people move, right? We do that a lot around here. <laughs> um, but pointing someone and making someone the best that they can be and, and to be all that God has for them is the best way to love people. Well, Paul's talking a lot about sin here in this passage, too. And I think as we talk about love, it's important to know that all of the sin that he talked about, adultery, murder, stealing, coveting, uh, all of this sin fades away with love. The first um, uh, five of the Ten Commandments have to do with how we look at God, how we view God, uh, that we should worship him, that we should stay away from idols and all those things. But the second five commandments have to do with how we treat our neighbor. Right? Do not murder. It's good to not murder your neighbor. Right? Uh, do not covet. Do not steal. Do not lie. Um, these things hurt those around us. And we not only hurt our neighbors, but we hurt ourselves by the damage we do to the, our relationships and just the things that happen when we're sinning. Nothing good can happen to us when we sin against others either. And I think we know that inherently. But not sinning is even bigger than that, uh, or, or the issue of sin is bigger than that. Each of these sins, let's take adultery, for example. Each of these sins consumes us. If you are in an adulterous relationship, your thoughts are consumed. You are totally focused on what's going on in that relationship. You can't help it. It's the nature of sin. So what's going on in your mind? Instead of thinking about God, you're thinking about, wow, when am I going to see him or her again? It's really difficult to schedule a time when my wife is trying to keep me so busy, uh, right? Oh, just thoughts going like this. Oh, last time I saw that person, it was so exciting. I can't wait to see them again. Um, or more importantly, how am I going to cover up our next meeting? And what are the lies that I told last time that I have to remember so I don't get caught. And so there's a hardness that starts to develop in us too as we lie our, our way around uh, a sinful relationship like this. And um, Patty and I joke every once in a while about someone I knew that I used to work with who just exhibited this hard-hearted behavior. Um, he was a colleague at work. Yo youngish guy, probably late 30s, very handsome, debonair, dashing, and... Um, he went out with his buddy one night to a nightclub, and uh, they came stumbling out of the nightclub about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, waiting for the car valet to get their cars for him. Now, there's a troubling thought, right? They're going to hop in a car after drinking all night. So the guy's standing there, and uh, this beautiful woman walks up to wait for her car. And he looks at her, and he says, hey, you're alone? I'm alone. We must have a lot in common. 
So uh, one thing led to another, and in the conversation there at the curb, and he looks at his friend, he says, Joe, um, I would really like for you to cover for me. Uh, will you tell my wife, uh, if, he, if she asked, that I stayed at your house tonight because I was too drunk to drive home and I wanted to be safe? Joe's like, got you covered. So about 9 o'clock the next morning, this uh, colleague of mine rolls into his house, and his wife is sitting there in the kitchen. And she says, where have you been? He said, oh, I got really drunk last night. I'm so sorry. He said, uh, I stayed over at Joe's house. She said, really? Joe called about a half an hour ago, wondering if he got home safely. Y'all got that? Yeah. <laughs> so caught. And as he walks away from his wife, he just looks at her and he says, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And you say, wow, I mean, that's hard. You know that relationship is broken and full of lies. And he's so hard, he doesn't even care about lying anymore. She knows what happened. Coveting, stealing, murder, they all consume our minds in the same way. We're focused. We can't get off of it. And when our minds are consumed with lust, when our minds are consumed with murder, with wanton pleasures, uh, it goes without saying that our minds are turned away from God. And this is probably the most harmful thing about sin, is that it turns our mind away from God and towards these otherworldly things. It separates us from God. And so that's the, the worst part about sin. I mean, it's bad enough what it does to our relationships and our neighbors, but for us personally, the fact that sin separates us from God is just a horrible thought. It is hard to follow the Ten Commandments. There's no question about that. And it's impossible to follow the Ten Commandments without the enablement of the Spirit of God within us. And the, the Spirit of God that lives within us enables us to do, th to do two things that we wouldn't otherwise do. The first one is to seek God and to know Him more, and to seek to know Him more. Without God's Spirit just continually pulling us, drawing us, we wouldn't be able to do that. We wouldn't be able to seek after Him. And the other thing the Spirit of God within us allows us to do is to love others. Because really, when it comes down to it, we just don't have the capability to love others the way we should. And when we define it in the way we just talked about, that loving someone else is pointing them to Christ and getting them to be in the best place that they can be, to be all that God created them to be, without God's Spirit in us, we just can't do that. We won't be interested. But when we do do these two things, seek after God and love others, our minds naturally then turn away from sin and turn back towards God. It's natural. And that's where the Spirit of God really works on us. As we love others, as we are enabled by the Spirit of Christ that is within us, our minds begin to turn away from sin and continually turn towards the welfare of others. And as we walk in this, as we go forward, as we step out and love our neighbors, to love our friends in ways that God wants us to do, we really have to step out in faith because to point someone to Christ, to tell them about God and tell them and to point out a flaw that would help them get closer to God takes a lot of courage. But as we do that, we see God's very hand walk, work in front of us as we walk, right? We see it. And that gets ex us excited. And so one of the things that I really love about being here is hearing the stories one after another after another about how we see God working in other people's lives around us. And that's God's love at work. And when we see that, we also want to seek God more so that God can fill our own lives more, right? 
And this in itself right there is a mark of holiness. If that's where you are, if you're moving towards God, you're growing in holiness. And if you're growing in holiness, it's a mark that you love yourself. If we care enough about ourselves to become the best that we can in Christ, then we can love others. And so this is the highest calling that we have. First, to love ourselves, to, um, to grow closer to God, and second, to love others in the same way that we love ourselves. So when we're seeking God and we're stepping out and loving others, here's the cool part. Sin starts to fade away. Why? Because you're continually looking towards God and you're continually looking at that person, that friend, and and praying for them and, and just encouraging them. And as you're doing those two things, you're not looking at sin. You're not looking. You're looking up and the sin just continues to fade away. Now, it's not going to be a week. It's not going to be a month. It could be a long time but it just starts to fade off into the distance, and that's really cool. Ultimately, as you do this, sin has to fade away because love and sin are just not mutually compatible. They are incompatible. Love and sin can't really exist in the same place. And so Jesus spoke a lot about this when he was on earth, and Paul is bringing up this same exact point that love is the greatest law that you can have. We talk about the Ten Commandments, but love is the greatest law. And he says in verse 10 that love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. But love is, no, is, is a lot more than fulfillment of the law. If uh, fulfillment of the law is just not harming your neighbor, uh, we could do a lot better. Uh, if you're loving your neighbor, not harming him, is kind of automatic, right? <laughs> like, kind of goes without saying. Um, I have to laugh. Um, I just want to give a quick shout out. My neighbor David is here today. Say hi to Dave. Hi, Dave. Dave, yeah, awesome. Uh, we 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 have we're, we're we're becoming really good friends. He's been living uh, in our neighborhood for uh, what four or five years now, David. Yeah, and uh, it's been really great. Can you imagine me like you know going out to my mailbox and. Uh, David's out in the yard and say, hey, Dave, how are you doing? It's great, great. Hey, Dave, I love you, man. I'm not going to steal any of your stuff this week. <laughs> and he's like, Paul, I love you, man. I'm not going to poison your dog this week, I promise. <laughs> like, what a bond, right? I mean, can you feel it? You know, it's just awesome. So um, this is the kind of relationship we have. It's really good. <laughs> But I'm really glad that David's here today because, uh, you know, David's come here to hang out with Genesis. He's been, it's not the first time here. Um, but actually, you know, I want you to ask him later. I'm going stick, to stick my own neck out here. When you meet David later and talking, having coffee or stuff, ask him how I'm doing as a neighbor to him. I don't know what he's going to say. I didn't rehearse this, so, I'm, you know, it could be bad. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it might be okay. So don't be afraid to ask him. Um, So in all of this, loving one another, seeking after God, we are following after this other calling that we have, this other parallel calling we have to love one another, which is we are called to be holy. And if we're seeking God and seeking to love others through God's enabling, then we will become automatically more holy. 
And, you know, I know a lot of you are sitting here like, yeah, holy, you know, there's a priest somewhere, he's holy, you know, Moses was holy, I can't be holy. Uh, it's not an unattainable goal. If you're doing these things, if you're seeking after God, and you're loving those around you, you're automatically moving and progressing and growing in holiness. And that's where God wants us to be. It's not unattainable. It is there. It's a calling that we each have. Um, you know, I'm not holy because I'm an elder at Genesis. I am growing in holiness because I'm seeking after God and doing my best that I can to love you guys. And uh, if I wasn't an elder at Genesis, nothing would change. I'd be doing the same exact thing, seeking after God and loving you guys the best that I can. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. This is uh, our calling to holiness. It says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. And I, I thought of this verse because it sort of parallels what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, put sin aside, love others. And Peter's here saying, put sin aside and become holy. They're, it's the same. If you're doing one, the other is happening. As you're growing in holiness, we have another churchy word for this. Um, it's called sanctification. Growing more Christ-like. And if someone is helping you to do this, to grow in Christ, if someone is encouraging you and moving you on, then they are really loving you. So I want to ask you a question this morning. As you sit here right now, I'm just going to pause for a minute. Who in your life is urging you on to become all that you can be in God's creation? Did someone pop to mind? I hope it did. I hope two or three or four popped to mind. Uh, if no one popped to mind, then I don't want you to leave here today without talking to someone, without grabbing someone and say, I didn't have anybody that comes to mind. I didn't have anybody. Come and grab me. And, you know, I will uh, point you, uh, I'll help you, or we'll get someone else to come alongside you that lives near you or whatever. Someone has to be in your life urging you on, pressing you on. But there's a better question than that for those of us here and those of us who have been here a while, is if you sit here, it's like, who in your life are you urging on? Who are you encouraging? Who are you teaching? Who are you pushing, pushing, pushing to become more Christ-like? All right, I'm going to get heavy here for a minute, so bear with me. This is pretty, pretty deep stuff. When we understand holiness and we begin to get a grasp on what God's holiness is and what God's holiness means in our life, which is deep. I mean, I mark my whole life, my whole growth as a Christian, I mark by my understanding of holiness. To me, that's the yardstick. It's the only yardstick I have. If you ask me, how are you doing in your walk? Are you growing? I'll go to that yardstick. You know, I think um, I understand God's holiness more this year than I did last year. That's good. If we understand God's holiness, and it's only when we do understand God's holiness that we can understand our humanness, all right? When we're walking with God, 
when we're truly walking with God, we should just be vibrant with life. We should just be like on fire. We should be full of passion. And we should be radiating just this glory of God in our lives. And I'm sure most of you uh, totally identify with that, right? Every day at work, is that how you feel? Not so much. Okay. That's where you should be. That's where God wants you to be. That sort of vibrancy of life, that passion for the things of God, is what makes us human. And we lost that. We lost it at the fall. That was what was lost. Just the the essence of all that we can be in, with God and in God. And it is the recovery of this essence of our humanness that Jesus came back to earth to recover for us so that we could be alive again, that we could have this excitement and vibrancy of the Spirit just at work in our lives. Jesus came back to earth with the specific goal of making us whole again, of making us human again. So if your life is not marked by these things, you're not truly human. You're not truly human in the way that God wants you to be human. Does that make sense? I know it's pretty deep. Sorry to lay that on you. But that's, that's, that's where it is. We have been rescued from the world and its pleasures into an intimate relationship with God. Why? So that we can have abundant life. And abundant life is exactly what we're talking about. Having the ability to love others. And at Genesis, our heart is to preach the whole gospel of Christ. Not that Jesus saved us to, this, um, to an eternal hope and to be in heaven, to, to live forever with him. That's wonderful. But he's also saved us into uh, this fullness of a vi- vibrant human life that we can walk and just be excited to be with him and walk with God and see all that he has for us. Jesus wants to make you alive and full of passion and full of life. If that's not where you are, every day you should be on your knees begging for it. And it's just, I mean, I I admit it's not my every day, but when I have a day like that, I want to shout from the rooftops, you know? Have have you felt that sometimes, just that day when just God grips you and just you're walking and you just feel full of life and you just, you literally want to climb the tallest building and just go, yes, Lord, you're in my life today, thank you. And as we strive for this, is that as, we, as we taste it and we strive for it, this thing called sin doesn't become this huge stumbling block anymore. It's like, I just want to get rid of it, cast it aside. I want to move it. I'll get it out of my way because that's where I'm going. And it just starts to fade away. So Paul moves on and he says, we need to understand the times. Let's take a look at verses 11 to 14. He says, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. That'll wake you up. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, 
not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So Paul is uh, urging us to do this, to love one another, but in the context of understanding the times. And so what do we need to understand about our current time? First, we need to understand that our current time is marked by darkness. That the world that we live in is controlled by the evil one, is controlled by Satan. But you might say, well, Paul, God is sovereign. God's hand is in control of everything. Yes, but for this time, Satan is in control of the world that we live in. He has authority to do that. Um, and I'll just take, let's take a quick look at 1 John 5, verse 18 to 19. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Recurring theme here, isn't it? The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So the time that we live in is marked by darkness. And the cool thing is that darkness that's been in place since the fall was punctuated by this amazing, great and amazing light. Jesus shows up. But Jesus is gone. He's left us his Holy Spirit. We obviously can become the same kind of lights that Jesus was, but darkness is still where we're at. Our time is one that's marked by darkness. When Jesus returns, this time will be over, and the night will turn to day. So in the biblical context, the night, the darkness that we live in is going to turn to day. And everywhere you see in the New Testament, it's coming soon, it's coming soon, it's coming soon. Why? Because our opportunity to love others, we need to look at that as though it's very short. Some of us have uh, longer times to uh, witness in our lives than others do. Some of us have a shorter window, and uh, we want to make the most of it. And that's where Paul is going. So he's saying... Don't just sit there. Don't let time waste. He's saying, wake up. The hour has come for you to to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So the reality is that most of us are walking through our lives sleepwalking. If we're not walking in this vibrancy of God, this vibrancy of life that God has for us that we're talking about, if we're not doing that, at best, we're just kind of stumbling along. And I was, as I was thinking this, I was thinking, I don't know how many of you have gone ice skating or play hockey or anything, but you go to a public skating rink, you always see that person that's on the side, like near the door, holding onto the railing, and their feet are flying all over the place, right? And they're, and they're this close from falling onto the hard ice, and they're moving at the speed of light, but they're going nowhere. And that's kind of like where we are if we're not filled by God and having this vibrancy of life, we're just stumbling along, going nowhere fast and really an inch from disaster. And Paul's calling us to wake up. Wake up from your sleep. Wake up from your slumber. Wake up. Smell the coffee. Take a look, look at what's going around, on around you. Take a look at who's in your life. And just notice that there's a whole world around you that's starved of God's love, right? I mean, you can see that. We know that. So, now that you've had the wake-up call, it's time to get dressed. 
I'm very observant. I noticed that you all came to church dressed this morning. Good job. Proud of you. Um, when we get dressed in the morning, you dress with a purpose, right? If you're going to go to work, you dress appropriately for your job. You might work in an office. You might have to wear a tie. If you're a plumber, you wear one of those blue suits that can get dirty. Uh, whatever it is, you, you put on the clothes that are suitable for what you can do. Paul, in these verses, encourages us to put on the armor of light. And this is a reference to the spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, and specifically, I like the sword of the Spirit, which is the words that we have or the words of God that can encourage those around us, right? So when we put on this armor of light, we're encouraging others with the truth and with the words of life because we're bearing this sword of the Spirit of truth. But why would Paul talk about armor here in this verse? And why would he go into so much, uh, to so much trouble to talk about armor in Ephesians chapter 6? It's because we're in a battle. And we're in this battle because this sort of fading away of sin that we're talking about, it's not that easy. It sounds like, oh, just keep pointing towards God and it'll be good and sin will fade away. But there's this guy, Satan, out there, and he keeps wanting to put it in your face, right? Here it is. Don't forget you did this. Don't forget you did this. Don't you want to do this? And so that's why it's a battle. We have to fight that. So Paul is exhorting us to put on this armor of light to help us fight that, to push it away so that we can look towards God. And he says, leave debauchery behind. Leave jealousy behind. Leave dissension behind. And put on the clothes of Jesus Christ. Put on this clothing. I think it's so cool that Jesus has us covered in so many ways. If you look at Colossians 1.27, we have Christ in us, right? The hope of glory resides within us. The Spirit of God resides right inside you, filling you for all that you need to do. And then we're clothed with Jesus Christ. He's got you covered in, out, through and through in every way. There's no way that you can lose. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus has you covered in, out, through, and through. So when I put my clothes on, to go to work, whatever it is, I actually intend to keep them on all day. I hope you do too. But when we put on Christ, let's have the same attitude. When you get up in the morning and you have your prayer time or whatever it is that you do, put on Christ and plan to wear them for the whole day, to love with his love all day. Because when you put on Jesus Christ and it, and it shows and people can tell, you have this amazing effect on people to love them, and to have an effect on their lives. And you have an effect that you don't have when, when you're not clothed with Jesus. I don't know if any of you have ever noticed uh, when you're in that mode. I, I have sometimes when you just I have a great, I feel like I'm close with the Lord. You know, around here in New England, you walk by people and they just they look at the floor, they look you know anywhere but look at you. They don't want to make any kind of connection with you. But every once in a while, as I'm walking through the halls of my office where there's all these strange people that I don't know, um, and I'm walking down the hallway, you'll see people sometimes just look at me with this funny look like, 
you know? I'm like, hi. And they go, hi. I'm like, what's up with that? And the only thing I conclude as I walk by, you know, as, as that happens, is there's something different about me that day than there was on another day. Let's bring up another point. When you're operating in dissension, jealousy, and all of those things, when we're operating in sin, the words that we speak are sometimes reflective of that, right? Unfortunately. And we have these words that are harmful. We say these mean things. And those words that we have actually will wound our friends. They'll wound those around us. They leave a mark. Sticks and stones won't break my bones. Rubbish. Words hurt. But the language of love that we have is one of encouragement, one of blessing. We talked last week about, the last few weeks, about encouraging and blessing one another. Those words that come out of your mouth are healing words. And they can actually not only encourage the person in that moment, but they can actually heal the wounds that they have already. That's amazing. So as we encourage those around us, as we love those around us, our words will bring life to them, will bring healing to them, and will allow them to just open up and allow the Spirit of God to work in their lives. We can do this in our families. We can do this with our friends. And we can even do this with our neighbors. Tough enough. But can we do this to people who are unlovely? And every one of you sitting here right now, now knows exactly who I'm talking about because you have one or two or three unlovely people in your life. Can you carry this love that you have to the unlovely? It's my prayer that we would have this room filled with unlovely people. But they'll be lovely to us because we will look at them differently. So we looked at our attitudes towards debt, and we considered that a right attitude would be to square that debt off quickly to sacrifice our wants and desires in the near term to achieve full payment of that debt quickly to our friend. Loving others is a desire that we should have too that never goes away. That same desire to pay it, to take care of it, to just do it should be the same, except it doesn't end. When I pay Fred the 500 bucks back, it's over. But it shouldn't end. We should love and love and love and love as if that was the thing I have to do the most. Are we willing to have that same attitude towards loving others as we do towards a debt with a friend, to sacrifice in order to step out and to love others? What will you need to give up? What do you need to give up? Think about it right now. You, there's something. It will be something. If you're going to generally step out and love other people, there's going to be something that has to go. It could be a sinful behavior. It could be an activity that you really love to do, but it gets in the way of you spending time with other people. You're going to have to sacrifice to love other people. It's outrageous when one of you, just one, one of you here in this room would wake up, get dressed, clothe yourself with Christ, get out there and love other people. 
And if I could point to one person here that was doing that well, we'd shout, hallelujah, that's awesome, that's great. That's just God's outrageous hand at work in your life. But it would be radical if we could all be doing it, every single one of us together, this body, Genesis, stepping out, loving others, loving others in the community, loving the unlovely, loving those around us, that would change things. My wish and my prayer is nothing more than for each of you to become great and mighty in Christ, to be all that you could be, to be, God has a plan for you. He knows what you're supposed to look like and how you're supposed to feel and what your passions and desires should be. And he wants you to be there. And it's my prayer that you could get there. Free from the entanglements of the world, and let loose with a passion, just this passion to share the love of Christ with those around you.